series is very important because Ephesians 6 and 16 says, make the best use of the time because the days are what? Evil. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. But today is the day of salvation. Got to make sure that I'm doing what I can do today. What I can do today. The first habit we talked about was flip the script. Though we may not like the story. We've developed throughout the years, God offers us a new identity and a new story. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, anybody in Christ tonight, there are what? A new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. Look at somebody tell them the new is here. Stop living like the old person that you were. The new is here. You are no longer who you once were. The old has passed away. Therefore, you are called to live in accordance with your new identity. So every day I've got to put on this new self. And I've got to lay that old man back down on the altar. And I've got to take the knowledge of the creator. Renew my mind and my spirit. The second habit was kiss the wave. We all face obstacles throughout our lives. And we often allow those obstacles to overtake us. However, if we use those challenges to our advantage... They can become leverage rather than a downfall. If I'll stop letting challenges push me back and just embrace them and say, I'm going to get through it. I'm going to make it. How? Learn to kiss the wave that throws you against the rock of ages. And by doing this, you will find strength through life's storms. That's what David did in Psalms 23. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the path of righteousness for what? His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table in the midst of my adversity. In the presence of all my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever habit one teaches us daily repentance if we don't repent every day we're not going to make it everybody hear what i just said if we're going to deal with with habit number one we get up every day we take off the old man we put on the new man habit number two deals with trust don't shout to a god you can't trust during the storm we got to trust him in the highs and we've got to trust him in the low points of our life now we reach habit three which focuses on anyone can accomplish almost anything if they work hard and do not procrastinate. We must learn to start the day on a high note, seeking God early. This is not going to be a popular lesson tonight, I can tell you right now. And it's going to set the tone for the rest of the day. Let's go to the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 43, verses 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none then it says I will return to my house from which I came 
You know how many people I've saw come to an altar, repent, cry, weep, God fill them with, their, with his spirit, and then two weeks later, they're not even around anymore? Because God delivered them, but they didn't replace their bad habits with good habits. When it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter, and they dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Habits, guys. Disciplines. Putting, putting disciplines in our life. Things that may, we may think that are complicated. Putting them in our lives and helping, helping replace bad habits. Helping God with our lives, putting good habits in our life. That way he can anoint us, use us, help us to be overcomers. So tonight I want to talk to you just for a moment on this topic. Eat the frog. Eat the frog. Eat the frog. One more time, give the Lord a loud ovation of praise. Amen. You may be seated. Bob Specker was a sophomore at Marple Newton High School when first introduced to the math induction theory. His teacher, Mr. Dabransky, liking that theory to the domino effect. So after school, Bob went out and bought two boxes of dominoes. He lined them up 112 dominoes in a row, pushed them over, and you know exactly what happened. It had a domino effect. After graduating high school, he appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson to show off his domino uh, toppling skills. As a result, the Guinness Book of World Records created a category to recognize his accomplishments in 1976. Bob set the first world record in domino toppling with a chain reaction numbering 11,111 dominoes. Over the next decade, he would break his own record five times, topping out and tapping out at 97,500 dominoes. Also around the same time, Bob was getting world records. A physicist named Lauren Whitehead was doing experiments with the domino chain reaction. Whitehead discovered that a domino is capable of knocking over another domino that is one and a half times its size. So a two-inch domino can topple a three-inch domino. A three-inch domino can tumble a four-and-a-half-inch domino. By the time you get to the 18th domino, you could topple the leaning tower of Pisa. But, of course, it's already leaning, so who really, who really cares? The 21st domino could take down the Washington Monument. The 23rd domino could knock over the Eiffel Tower, and the 27th domino could cartwheel the 160-story, can't even say that word, but it's a big building. Now, let me double all the way back to the math induction theory. Instead of a fancy formula, let me give you a real-world example. According to this theory, you can climb as high as you like on a ladder by starting at the bottom rung. Then climbing the ladder one rung at a time. However, this theory is, isn't new. The idea is as old as the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11 and 6. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. And they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they've imagined to do. Can I say it another way? We can accomplish almost anything we want to accomplish if we start working one day at a time. Listen, we've got to pray like it depends on God, but we've got to work like it depends on us. 
Because if we want God to do the super, what do we have to do? The natural. It's the only way that God shows up to do the supernatural. We must put our hands to the plow and press toward the mark of the high calling of God and not look back when God got ready to deliver Lot and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible says the angels had to drag him and his wife and his daughters out of the city by hand because they were too attached to it. They had become so comfortable in a society that rejected God and his laws. And Lot's wife, we know, shows the most hesitance and received the due punishment for it. Even though the angels strictly warned her, do not look back. Don't stop anywhere in the plane. Keep moving forward. Lot's wife paused. Look back in Genesis 19 and 26 says, it doesn't say that God turned her into a pillar of salt. It said that she became a pillar of salt. You know why? Because she had two choices. Number one, she could apply the word of the Lord to her life, turn away from sin, follow after God. Or the second thing, she could, she could ignore the word of God, not apply it to her situation, and she became a monument instead of a movement. And oh, I know a lot of people that are in the kingdom of God, and they're monuments, but they're no longer a part of the movement. They're stuck. They're stale. They're not going anywhere. We choose to become that. I know people say, well, I'm just so bitter. God made me this way. No, no, God did not make us that way. We have settled instead of getting the word of God back out and applying it to our lives and moving forward in what God wants us to be and what he has in store for us. We choose to be a monument or we choose to be a part of the movement. Satan has two primary tactics when it comes to neutralizing us spiritually. You know what those are? Discouragement and fear. That's what they are. He wants us discouraged, and he wants us fearful. He wants us to focus on past mistakes we've made. That's why he's called the accuser of the brethren. And the end result is the loss of courage. The other tactic is fear. Satan wants to scare the heaven out of you. He wants to put you on your heels so you become reactive and defensive instead of offensive and a part of a movement. That's why he's described as a prowling lion. I read an article in the New York Times that said lions do not always play fair. Do you know who they prey on? The feeble and the weak. Those that are not moving. They become stationary. Researchers have found that predators show a preference for less than fully capable victims. In other words, they want to get those or are going to get those that won't put up much of a fight. And we wonder why the enemy is wreaking havoc right now on believers is because we've become reactive instead of proactive we've been waiting on an attack so that we can respond instead of getting up every morning and say i've got to fight before he ever gets to me i've got to put on my armor before the battle ever i can't wait on the battle to get started i've got to get up today i've got to be proactive i've got to put on the armor of god because there is going to be a fight there is going to be a battle i'm intentional about this i don't want to be a sitting duck for the enemy Instead, I want to become the lion. I want to be the lion and become intentional about staying on offense. How? 2 Timothy 1 and 7. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Sound mind is self-control or self-discipline. That's where God wants us. There are four signs that we are being controlled by fear. Number one, we feel unloved by God. How many Christians feel unloved? How many Christians, literally, they feel so condemned, so beat up, 
so tore up. Condemnation is running rampant in their life that they don't even really believe God can love them anymore. If you're feeling unloved by God or questioning his love for you, this is likely seated in a fearfulness or unwillingness to trust his goodness. You don't think you can be loved, and the enemy has convinced you of that, but I've come to tell you different. God's got your name engraved on the palm of his hand. He knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly what your name is. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly what you need. The enemy would like nothing more than for us to hide from a God that wants to spend time with us. Believing that he does not love us. When we're feeling unloved by God, instead of hiding from him, we must run to him. Let me give you, are you ready? You want some practical teaching? If you're going to break that, that spirit of fear that's making you feel unloved, instead of hiding from God, why don't you step out and say, God, I'm available today. Instead of just say, staying in your row, why don't you run to the altar? And why don't you tell God, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. You will surround me with songs of deliverance. There is no fear in love, 1 John 4 and 18. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Believe that God loves you. Draw close to him. Give him all your flaws, all your issues, all your shortcomings. Be real. If you're going to break the spirit of fear, the second, the second thing that the enemy, the enemy uses, those that are controlled by the spirit of fear, is they avoid Bible reading and prayer. When I do this, I'm usually overwhelmed by life and my responsibilities. So I try to ignore, I try to ignore what's going on around me or push through. He told us to cast our cares on him. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's prayer. Bring your cares to him. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. James 1 and 5, if you don't have wisdom and you lack it, what does it say to do? Go to God and ask him for the wisdom you need. Just because you don't have the answers doesn't mean you don't need to pray. Just because you don't know what's going on, that's when you need to approach God and say, God, I don't understand. I need you to help me right now. Well, preacher, I just, uh, you know, I just ain't got time for the word. Well, it's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You know why it's a lamp unto my feet? It keeps my feet warm. You know why it's a light? It lights up what's in front of me so I don't step on anything that I, God's not intending for me to get hurt by. Every day I read from my notes in my Bible that I mark up. And this is what, this is what I tell God. God, today I'm going to have cold feet at some point in my life or some point in my day. I'm going to have cold feet. Something's going to happen. I'm going to get nervous. I'm going to get scared. I'm going to be fearful. But, God, I'm going to get your word out, and it's going to warm my feet up so that I can walk when I don't feel like I can walk. God, there's going to come a point where the enemy's going to put me in a dark place. I'm not going to know what to do. I'm not going to know where to go or where to turn. But, God, I've got your word that says if I open it up, it'll warm my feet up, and it'll be a light. So whatever snare or trap the enemy has put before me, it won't catch me. So that's the way you got to break that is you got to pray. You got to read the word. Number three, difficulty connecting with others. This is, this is for many reasons. Fear of rejection. 
Fear of being hurt, fear of being responsible for someone else or having to give something up for others, fear of becoming dependent. The spirit of fear keeps us from living out the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. When you're controlled by fear, you don't want to connect with people. You don't want to be loved by people. You don't want anybody saying how you're doing. You don't want to ask anybody else how they're doing. This can hurt not only those around us, but ourselves. God made us for relationships with other humans. In the beginning, he created Adam. He said, it's not good for Adam to be alone. We're meant to be connected with people. If someone is happy and healthy, they tend to bond in positive ways. If someone is not happy and they're beat down and they're worried, they tend to bond in negative ways, including using drugs to help them cope or self-medicate. The opposite of addiction is not just sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. You've got to surround yourself with people who are going after the same things that you're going after. You've got to have encouragers in your life that says, you know what? You don't need to go back and be what you used to be. God has created something new in your life, and you can be more than what you used to be. So how do we break this? We connect. We connect. We connect with one another. We we show up. We we engage. Even introverts. Any introverts in the house besides me, raise your hand. No excuse. You got to do away with that. It's got to go. Got to connect with people. I got to pray for people. I got to be a part of the body. Number four, if fear is controlling you, you compromise. You compromise on morals. Sometimes when it seems like it's the only way to survive, to keep people happy, to get what we want, we will compromise our morals. We will do things we know we shouldn't do in order to attain that which we seek. And sometimes it feels like compromising might be the best course of action. Will God really mind if we do something he said we shouldn't just this one time? Will he care if we deny him just, you know, just around certain people as long as we pray, for, pray to him afterwards? It's a dangerous path. Recall when Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Where sin and suffering begin, the serpent asked, did God really say? If you're asked the question, did God really say, he probably said. There it is. If you have to say, did God really say, he probably said. And, and, and watch this. Andy Stanley wrote something years ago. We've taught on it. We've preached on it. The greatest question that you could ever ask is not, is it a sin? Is it wise? If I make this decision, what is going to be the domino effect in my life after this moment? Does God really mean we shouldn't cheat? Is he really serious that we shouldn't steal? When we compromise, we're essentially saying that we do not trust God to take care of us, that we've got to use our own methods in order to take care of ourselves. And we believe that we need to do things our way. And this feeling that we cannot trust God stems from a spirit of fear, fear that God will not keep his promises. And Apostle Paul assures Timothy that fearfulness does not come from God. Rather, God's Holy Spirit provides power, love, and sound discipline. The necessary spiritual resources for fulfilling ministry and employing spiritual gifts, such uh, divine resources in our life, is through the work of the Holy Spirit. Lewis Mead said this, self-control is like the conductor of a symphony orchestra. Under the conductor's baton, the multitude of talented musicians can play the right notes at the right time, at the right volume, so that everything sounds just right. 
Likewise, our appetites and longings have their proper place when we are daily submitted to the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. Self-discipline is the art of controlling oneself, our thoughts. See, you thought you got the Holy Spirit and it was going to do it for you. If you don't turn on the engine, it's not going to run. I know a lot of people, they, they got the Holy Spirit, but it's just lying dormant. It hasn't been stirred up in a long time. It's not activated does no good. You've got to stir it up because self-discipline is the art of controlling oneself, our thought, our feelings, our desires, and actions by denying ourselves the old man and taking up our cross and following him. Now, that's a zinger to get your attention because denying yourself isn't fun. People don't normally wake up in the morning and say, I cannot wait to deny myself today. It's on the top of my agenda. I cannot wait to get up this morning and tell my flesh no. But what do we do? We wait till we get in a precarious situation, and then we want to say no. Instead of waking up with a made-up mind, I'm saying no today to anything that can offset me and my destiny. I've got to deny myself. But in order to experience the lordship and provision of Christ on earth, you must be willing to say no to yourself. One scholar said a man cannot govern a nation if he cannot govern a city. He cannot govern a city if he cannot govern himself. And he cannot govern himself unless his passions are subjected to reason. People who try to win the day without self-discipline are like a ship that loses control when it loses its rudder. And during a storm, it is free to sail anywhere, even on the rocks and into other ships. And the sailors blame the storm instead of taking responsibility for not maintaining the rudder. We can blame the storms around us or we can take ownership that we didn't take care of the maintenance of the rudder. And that's why it fell off in the storm. That's why in Proverbs 25, Solomon condemns the backbiting tongue, the nagger, the glory seeker, and the person who does not control his temper. Now, does any of that describe you? If so, it's time to change. Why do I need to change, preacher? Do you want people to think of you as, a cold, as cold water to a parched throat or as a polluted well? You want people coming to you and when they leave, they feel better about the kingdom of God or when they leave, they're more polluted than what they were before they ever came to you. Then he writes this, Proverbs 25 and 28. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. We're a danger to others. and We're a danger to ourselves if we don't put daily disciplines in place. Self-control is the Holy Spirit's baton in our hearts under whose skillful direction everything stays in its proper place and comes in and out just the right time. It's the flow of God. It's the movement of God. It's the ebbs and flow of what the Spirit wants to do in our life. To be self-controlled is to be Spirit-controlled. I don't know if that's on your notes, but if it is, if it's not, write it down. To be self-controlled is to be Spirit-controlled. The key is the author of this book called Domino, uh, Domino Habits, Little Habits That Are High Leverage Habits. Here's what I know for sure. If you do the little things like they're big things, God will do the big things like they're little things. If you ever have to eat a live frog, Mark Twain said, it's best done first thing in the morning. Why? Because you can go through the rest of the day knowing that the hardest task is behind you. What to-do list items are you most tempted to procrastinate on in your walk with God? Goals have you, have, you, have you had forever, but you haven't taken the first step toward yet? What difficult decision have you been delaying? That, my friend, is your frog 
And you must start first thing in the morning because how you start the day sets the tone for the rest of it. Yet many of us never give the morning a second thought. Now, some of you night owls, you're thinking, Pastor, you're messing with my morning time right now. Your morning may be different from my morning. You may work nights, so you may wake up at 4 o'clock in the evening. That's your morning. When you get up, that, when you get up that's your moment to make sure everything is in place. Why? Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Mercy meets us when we first wake up, if we allow it. It's not because yesterday's mercies were bad or weak, but it's because yesterday's mercies were for yesterday. Today's mercies are for today's burdens, and they are new every morning. They're like the manna in the wilderness. You can't keep it overnight. Enough comes for each day. You live on God day by day, or you don't live on God at all. Today's mercies for today's troubles. Tomorrow's mercies are for tomorrow's troubles. As your days, as your days so, so as your days are, so shall your strength be. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. The troubles and the mercies are appointed day by day. Psalms 46 and 1 says that God is a very present help in time of trouble. That's why I need to start my day with the word. My pastor, Brother Shot, he taught me this. He doesn't take a phone call. When he wakes up in the morning, he doesn't take a phone call. He doesn't read a text message. Even if it's from his son or his daughter, it could be an emergency. He will not read that text message until he reads one verse every morning when he gets up. Before he ever gets on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Hope you don't have Snapchat. Before he ever does anything, he reads a verse. My mornings start with my scriptures and then my prayer time. It sets the tone for the day and puts everything else in perspective. And I'm going to give you my schedule in a little while. Listen, I love steak. Can I hear an amen from anybody in the house? Sister Holiday don't like it, but I love it. Love steak. I could eat steak seven days a week. I love it. It's my favorite meal. Hands down, by far my favorite meal. I like pasta, too. It's a good combination, steak and pasta. I like both. But steak is my meal. But if I eat trash all day, Reese's Pieces, Starburst, hot tamale candy, all day, I'm talking about all day, and I get home, and my wife says, babe, we grilled a filet. Got, it, got some butter on top of it. Got it seasoned just right. It's tender. You can cut it with a fork. No matter how good that steak is, my appetite has been overtaken by the junk that I've taken all day that I can't even enjoy the food that is now on the table. And some of us are wondering why we don't enjoy the Word of God. What have you taken in all day that has already suppressed your appetite that you no longer hunger and thirst for the things of God anymore? Filled up on Jerry Springer. I don't even know if he's a thing anymore. Listen to all that talk radio, and I'm not against, I am against Jerry Springer. I'm not against talk radio. Listening to all that stuff, but the Word of God is sitting out there, and He wants to give you the guidance for that day, but you've taken in everything else into your appetite that you no longer desire the things of God. First thing, first thing in the morning or when I wake up, I want to make sure I want to make sure that I'm getting in the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. I've got to read this, and I've got to hurry. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not 
war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare or what not what they're not carnal but they have divine power to destroy strongholds we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of god and take every thought captive to obey christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete notice what it says you can't you can't punish disobedience until your obedience is first complete you've got to do what you know to do to fight with the spiritual weapons you have before you ever deal with the disobedience in your life. You can't say, I'm going to deal with disobedience, and you haven't dealt with obedience yet. By strongholds, Paul isn't talking about physical fortresses, of course, but about destructive patterns of thought that lead people astray and hold them hostage to sinful, harmful, and addictive behavior. We know Paul is concerned with the mind. Because he is demolishing arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And he wants to help believers take every thought captive to obey Christ. Satan's strategy is to block the knowledge and the application of God's word in your life. That is his strategy. Did everybody just hear me? I'm telling you right now, what builds strongholds in your mind is when you don't have a relationship with the Holy Spirit and the word of God. If we don't know the truth, how can we ever truly be free? So the enemy does everything he can to build strongholds in our mind so the word can never, never, never be applicable in our mind. And then we're bound and our thoughts are negative and our, our feelings are negative and our outlook is negative. When your relationship to the living word connects to the written word, you will be free. But I've got to be intentional. If I'm going to tear down strongholds, I can't just say I'm going to tear them down. No, I've got to tear down strongholds and I've got to replace I've got to do spiritual strongholds in my life. Things that's going to hold on to me when I go through the storms and the struggles and the battles. And 1 Samuel 17, the Philistine army had come to make war against the army of Israel. And the Philistines stood on one end of the mountain and Israel stood on another end of the mountain. And there was a valley between them. And Goliath, the champion of the Philistines, stood about nine feet tall and carried a huge shield and a 14-foot spear. Every day for 40 days, he would walk down into that valley. And he would defy God, and he would defy the people of God. Goliath was the first thing they heard in the morning, and the last thing they heard at night. Day after day, the taunting voice of the enemy and all his threats would rain down on their ears and erode their confidence. And those who study mental health will tell you that whatever dominates your mind in the morning and the evening will establish what kind of life you're going to have. Whatever Voice, whatever you're putting in your mind and your spirit in the morning and in the evenings is going to determine your outlook, your perspective, and the kind of life that you have. That's why the psalmist said in Psalms 113 and 3, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, I'm going to praise the name of the Lord. From the rising, when I wake up first thing in the morning, I'm getting me a little verse in, getting me a little praise in. And when I get ready to go to bed at night, God, you've been so good. God, I want to tell you tomorrow when I wake up, I'm going to be more than an overcomer. I'm going to be more than a conqueror, God. When you go to bed in your word and you wake up in your word and you just got things gnawing on your nerves all the time and it erodes your confidence just as Goliath's threats did to the Israelite army, you got to deal with it. Goliath wanted to occupy the valley, but he did not have ownership of it. You know who that valley belonged to? Does anybody know? That valley that Goliath stood on, does anybody know who it belonged to? Judah. Your valley doesn't ever belong to fear. It does not belong to stress. 
It does not belong to intimidation and worry. Every valley in your life belongs to Judah, Judah, which represents praise. If I can learn how to praise in the valley, when things aren't going good, but I praise him in the morning, I praise him in the evening. When everything around me, I should be fearful and worried. I praise him in the morning. I praise him in the evening. You don't have to deny the darkness of the valley. But you do got to praise in the midst of that darkness. You don't have to turn the valley over to the enemy. Issues are real. Hardships are real. But my relationship with God is also real. David had won some battles in his private life. And this is what I tell people. Before David was ever qualified to kill a giant, he learned how to kill a bear and a lion when there was no audience. I know a lot of people, they want an audience. But they don't want private devotion. They want to be something in public that they're not in private. But can I give you a word? You'll never kill the giants in your life till you learn how to kill a bear and a lion when nobody's looking and nobody's around. If you, you'll never have joy in public if you don't learn how to have it in the personal space of your life, in your home, with your family. David's kingship started in the solitude of his daily responsibilities with a harp and some sheep. Don't get discouraged where you are right now because where you are is preparing you for that moment that giant calls your name. The real battle was not between David and Goliath. The real battle was about who was going to occupy the valley. David said to the Philistine or the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord. David said, you can have all the weapons you want. But in my private devotion in my prayer time I found a God who's hung every star in the sky I have found a God that is more powerful and stronger and mightier than you ever are and he's anointed me for this moment and I'm going to take your head off today I've had enough I bet you I, I guarantee you that that day that David's father sent him with lunch for his brothers David had no clue that that was going to be the moment that set him up to have divine favor with the people and they would sing in the streets. Saul has killed his thousands. David's killed his ten thousand. He killed one giant. But when he killed that one giant, that one giant was connected to 10,000 victories. But he never kills a giant if he doesn't kill a bear and a lion. That anointed young man of God ran toward Goliath, loaded his sling, let the river rock fly. He made a final lasting impression on Goliath and dropped him where he stood. He cut off Goliath's head. You know where he took it? He took it back to his tent and put it on a pole. He took home the symbol of his victory and he held it up for everybody to see. Some of us need to stop taking our victories just to the church, and you need to take the victories that you have in your life. You need to take them home with you, and you need to let the enemy know, I can give victory at church, but I can also give victory when I'm in my home and nobody's around. Some of us need to let the giant know, hey, look, I don't just celebrate at church. Come around my house. I am who I am when I'm at home or when I'm at church. There's victory in my house just like there's victory in the church. Not giving a day over to the enemy. And then you read about the, sh the, the Shema. And it refers to a couple lines from the book of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. And this is what it said. It was a daily prayer for ancient Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God and he's one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them, what? In your home and when you're away. Watch this. Talk about them when you lie down and when you rise up. Even back in Deuteronomy 6, what set the people up for success is God was the first thing on their mind when they woke up, and he was the last thing on their mind when, he went to bed, when they went to bed. And we here at the river, I can tell you the formula is exactly the same. Before you go to bed, get your little word in you. When you wake up in the morning, get your little word in you. God doesn't just give commands. He couples them with daily routines. Getting up, lying down. If you're trying to cultivate a prayer habit, one of the best ways to do it is first thing in the morning or last thing at night. Why? Because those routines function as reminders. They set an alarm in our mind. It's time to pray. And consistency beats intensity seven days a week. According to Duke University, a Duke University study, 45% of daily behavior is automatic. That's not bad unless, of course, there are bad habits. Habits are the way we put things on repeat. Without that ability to automate, we have to relearn everything we do every single day. Leadership starts with self-leadership, and self-leadership starts with daily habits. You've got to do an analysis of your time management, your talent management, and your treasure management. You've got to identify strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, SWAT. And here's what I believe. You can reinvent yourself. You can become different. A few weeks ago, I went to my wife. I said, babe, I'm drowning. I am drowning. I'm an analytical person. I try to do everything that I can. I feel like I'm a hard worker. But I told her, I said, babe, I am drowning. I said, I can't, I can't get my head above water. I said, I'm just, I'm drowning. There's too much going on. I said, I'm, I'm a contractor. I said, I'm a lawyer. I'm a preacher. I said, I'm all the above. I'm a counselor. I'm a visitator. <laughs> I'm all of it. I'm a preacher. I said, I'm tired. So I sit down and I said, you know what? I'm letting my, my schedule control me. I got to take control of my schedule. So Monday, you know what I started doing? On Monday, I study all day. I sit down, put my phone on silent, and I study all day. All day Monday is study, me and God time, prayer. What do you want to tell this church on Sunday? Tuesday is staff meeting and after 12, visitation and check on all my pastors. Wednesday, me and God till 12. And after 12, it's me and everybody else, and it's building programs and finances. And Thursday is study time till 12. And after 12, it's others. And Friday, it's study till 12. And after 12, for others. And Saturday, family day. And Sunday, church time. Well, preacher, I can't do that. I work 50 hours a week. It's all right. You can't do what I do, and I can't do what you do. But just because you can't do what I do doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything at all. And I know what you're thinking right now, Pastor. I didn't come here to get self-help tonight. I'm not giving you self-help. It's making the most of your time, talent, and treasure. It's my utmost for his highest. It's cultivating not only good habits, but God habits. Luke 16 and 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in very much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you aren't dependable in the small things, how can God ever trust you with the big things? I've had people come to me, preach, I want God to use me. How, how do I get used? How do I preach in a pulpit? And what I really want to say, and I don't, because if I don't have the unction of the Holy Ghost, I'm very, very nice and meek. Right now, I'm pretty bold. But what I want to tell them is I want you to go home, and Monday through Friday, I want you to spend time in prayer and reading the Word every day. 
The number one thing that I look at for any leader at this church is faithfulness and accountability. I want to learn. I want to learn, hey, God, how do I grow? Now, I've got to hurry, and I I promise you I'm not going to be much longer. We're going to be out of here by 8 o'clock. I've got five minutes. Let me break this down. Preacher, how do I start? You're overwhelming me. Well, I'm not meaning you're overwhelming you, so I'm going to give you three things to help you. Make it measurable. You know what the number one thing they want a Navy SEAL to do? To make their bed in the morning when they get up. Before they ever go through all their training, they want to make sure they know how to make their bed in the morning. Control what you can and make it accomplishable. Don't over. Listen, don't let somebody that's been in this for years, don't let, don't let me overwhelm you. Don't, don't do what I do. You can utilize it, but don't, don't do what I do. Start small. How about seven minutes a day in the Word and seven minutes a day in prayer? How about seven, seven? Brother Tenney said this. He said, there's hardly a day that goes by that I pray a full hour, but there's never an hour goes by that I'm not praying. Little, make it meaningful. Make it meaningful. So number one, you want to make it manageable, something that you can do, that you know you're going to do, and then you want to make it mean, meaningful. Get you a picture of somebody you love. Put it in your wallet, on your fridge, in your car, and you say, I'm doing this for them. I look today, and I'm not, I said it Sunday, and I've laughed, so I'm going to say it again. I don't want you to pin a rose on my nose. I don't even know what that means. But today, I went to my Bible app, and uh, four and a half years ago, was it, my son started having seizures, right at five, maybe, and uh, I had to to fight. God told me, he said, are you going to sit here and weep and cry and I ran here on the altar one day, brother. Well, I'm telling you, I started sliding from where brother Sean's at, and I slid all the way to the altar, and I said, God, I mean, he has a seizure. He goes blind. Son wakes up out of a seizure. He can't see. Losing my mind. And God said, what you going to do? So every day, I started doing Psalms 20, 23, 27, 29, 11, 30, 91, 95, 1 through 5, and 100 plus notes on my phone and prayers. I pray every day. Today, I went to my Bible app, and I wanted to know how long have I been doing this routine on top of my studying and everything else. And today, when I went to my Bible app, it said I had a streak of 1,423 days, 238 weeks, four and a half years that I've got up every morning. But I'm not doing it for me. I'm just being honest with you. I'm doing it because I've got a blind-headed little boy that every day I'm going to get up. I don't know if he's ever going to have a seizure again. I'm not God. But if God looks at me and says, Josh, what are you doing about it? I'm fighting every day. I'm making it meaningful. meaningful. Get a picture of your family and say, I'm doing it for them. Make it meaningful. Get up every day. If you're going to eat the frog, you got to make it manageable. you got to make it meaningful. The third thing, make it maintainable. You're capable more than you can imagine. Make it. Don't despise small beginnings. Make it maintainable that you can do. Remember, the children of Israel walked around the walls of Jericho six times for six days. Before they ever shouted finally on that seventh day. And too many in this generation are bypassing the walk and going straight to the shout. I love shouting, but my relationship with God doesn't just take place with a shout. It takes place with a daily walk. It's maintainable. So let me go back to Matthew and I'll close out. Musicians, you can come. Matthew 12, 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit is going out. Of a person. It passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And it comes, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. 
and the last state of that person is worse than the first, so also it will be with this evil generation. Why is the person worse off? Because they didn't cultivate the daily disciplines necessary to back up their divine deliverance. And I've been around this long enough, Brother Ralph, to know that we, we celebrate divine deliverance, and we should. But we don't push daily disciplines. God can deliver you in a day, no doubt. But you've got to cultivate some habits to back up the miracle that God has given you. It's called a double bind. I preached about it. We think holiness by subtraction. We think just stop sinning. You just don't stop sinning by not sinning. Does anybody know that? You just don't wake up and say, I'm just going to stop sinning. You got to put things in place. That's like saying to somebody, don't think about the Jolly Green Giant. What image just popped in your head? But they call it a double bind. It's not holiness by subtraction. Holiness by subtraction doesn't add up to righteousness. Goodness is not the absence of badness. Righteousness isn't just being right. It's doing something right. It's not just breaking even. It's going all in and all out for Christ. And too many Christ followers are playing not to lose instead of playing to win. We're playing prevent defense. If God, if something happens, I'm going to do something. You're not. Because we're called to advance the kingdom, not hold the fort. It's the difference between why and why not. It's the difference between if only or what if. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'm not playing defense today. I'm on offense because my soul matters and the soul of my family matters. I'm playing offense today and not defense. And today I've come to let the enemy know as we stand. I come to tell the devil, I'm not whimpering in defeat tonight. I know what's going on all around me, but I'm not barely making it. I'm not waving the white flag of surrender tonight. Every day I get up, I'm waving the blood-stained banner to let the enemy know I am going to win. I'm not huddled in a foxhole. I'm going to get out of the foxhole. I'm going to overcome doubt and anxiety. I'm going to bring this gospel to whosoever will. I'm going to make sure that I'm doing everything I can, Brother William, everything that I can. Brother Rob, you correct me on this if I'm wrong. Those priests in the Old Testament performed their priestly duties seven days a week for a whole year, more than once a day, am I right? How many times did they experience the glory of God? One time a year. I wonder sometimes, and I don't have Bible to prove this, if God pulls back his spirit to see how much we really want more of him. Could you... Read your Bible, pray, live righteous, love people, pursue holiness. If God says, I'm not going to let you feel my spirit for 364 days, could we? You know why? But because we become so emotion-driven. Listen, I feel it every Sunday. I feel the responsibility. God, I've got to get people, I've got to get them moved. And God sit there telling me, he told me this week, 
He said, don't get them moved. Get my word in them. Because can I give you, give you another prophecy and I'm done. It's 803. God wants to build a kingdom of priests. He don't want to build the kingdom around one man that preaches in a pulpit. He wants to build the kingdom around every one of us that is in this building. But we've got to take on the responsibility of being who God's called us to be, doing what we can. I don't want you leaving here heavy. You just got to do what you can do. I didn't go to that prayer room for I don't know how many years because I don't pray like C.A. Spikes. Listen, when I pray, the walls don't move. But I can tell you what, brother, will I pray? And God spoke to me one day. He said, if I wanted you to be C.A. Spikes, I'd have made you C.A. Spikes. He said, be who you are and do what you do. So I got this Bible out. I am who I am. I can't even go on YouTube and watch preaching because then I'll be like, man, why can't I be like them? I'm not them. I'm me. Be who you are. Be free of trying to be anybody else. Find what works for you, but do something to make sure that you're advancing yourself in the kingdom of God. We're going down to the river.